Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. But when it comes to most men, death is the last thing on their minds. They go on from day to day as if they were to live here forever. As if this was the only life. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered to date. We're going to North America in the year 1772. We're going to hear a sermon preached by Samson Ockham. Yeah, Joel, it is not every day we get a sermon like this. This sermon is... It's special for several different reasons. It is the first sermon from any Native Americans that had been converted. It is one of the earliest writings by a Native American. And the in fact, that this would be the first writing, but the first writing was published by a family member of Samson's just before it. And so that was a letter to Moses Paul. So the same Moses Paul that we're going to learn about more in the story, He, the letter to him became the first published. This became the second publishing by a Native American in the colonies, which by the way, is in the 1770s. It's a little late. So I, you know, that, that they weren't getting a lot published there before that, it would seem. And the other thing that's really unique about this sermon is that this is a sermon that was preached before an execution Okay, we've had a couple sermons from funerals, you know, after somebody dies, they're telling us about the incredible life. You know, we just did one by Robert Murray McShane about this incredible life lived, but this is a sermon at an execution. So this is coming minutes before a person is sentenced to death. And when you listen to this sermon, you're going to definitely realize this is a -a one-of-a-kind sermon. Troy, Samson is uh, not the most well-known person in the world. But I feel like you should. I feel like you should get a little bit more credit than he gets. He was a very influential uh, man in his in his day in his time. He was born in 1723, and if you know much about uh, the theology in America in the 1700s, that's about 15 years before the Great Awakening. So this is the environment that that Occam is growing up in, one that is uh, filled with these preachers all over that are evangelizing and sharing the good news of Jesus. And and Occam found himself in such a situation when he was about 16 years old, and he heard one of these evangelists that came to town and and shared the the news of Christ with him. It was that sermon that, that converted Occam to Christianity. After becoming a believer, he would attend a Latin school run by Eliezer Wheelock. And that's an important name. He He's a big part of the story and who Occam is and that relationship they had. But Wheelock would be kind of his uh, the professor slash runner of the school that, uh, that he attended there after becoming a believer. Now, before we go on, there are some interesting things kind of already that happened. Maybe you might have missed them because you have a guy who is a member of the Mohegan tribe who was actually a counselor to the chief. So he's, he's got a pretty nice position there, yet he knows English enough to become a Christian when the evangelists come to town. I mean, that's something you can't skip over. He had been taught English so that when he heard the Great Awakening sermons, he was able to understand them and be convicted by them. So he's already kind of unique a little bit in this way. Uh, part of this we can trace back to is due to the fact that his mother had become a Christian earlier in life, and she was really trying to make sure that he would also become converted. And when he did become converted, she was the one who arranged for him to go to Wheelock's school. Now, it's got to be noted that 
Wheelock is among many different people who were really trying to make inroads into the different tribes uh, that were in you know North America for Christ. So having a student who was from one of those tribes, he was actually doing pretty well in one of those tribes, and he he could be a Christian and tell others he could be, you know, that's great. That's seen as a really good thing. So when Wheelock saw him, he's like, this could be a guy who could really help us bring the gospel to these places. However, you know, <laughs> Occam, it almost, go, you know, with things that we always have to say, it almost goes without saying Occam's health was not the best because so many of these guys have bad health. Um, and his eyes, he had really bad eye strain. He couldn't read for too long or he wouldn't, his he just wasn't able to do it. And so being a student was really tough for him. Just it wasn't really the culture he was used to and his health wasn't the best. Yet, despite all that, he became excellent in English. He learned Latin and he became a student of Greek and Hebrew too. So he was, despite, honestly, a lot of things that could have kept him from being a student, he excelled and did really well. Wheelock and and Occam would go on to have a rocky relationship and we're going to get into that a little bit more. We're going to get into some of the details but I don't want to overlook the relationship that these men had. They were good friends for the majority of, of their relationship, for the majority of their life. Wheelock helped educate Occam and get him into several different ministry opportunities. They had lots of ministry endeavors together. Uh, and they were able to do a lot of good work and share the gospel with a lot of people. But later on in their lives and in their relationship, uh, there was this conflict arise that, that we'll get into that drove them apart. But from, from all accounts, they had a great relationship up until then. Yeah, they, they, were, they weren't doing too bad in those early days. And you're right, it definitely, once it goes sour, it, this is probably, uh, I, I won't say it's the most sour relationship. And we've covered contentious relationships, you know, famously uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield. So that, you know, these things come up in ministry, but this one's really bad. And Wheelock will, I, I don't want to say he started the rumors. He might not have started the rumors, but boy, he definitely sent out and kind of published a letter of rumors. And one of the rumors that he published was Occam spent too much money. And this was a rumor that had kind of already and will always haunt Occam throughout his story is that he spent too much money. He was a spendthrift. He was not trustworthy with the budget. And so, and, and, and it was an easy rumor to send about him because everywhere he went, he showed up looking kind of poor, kind of bedraggled. You know, his clothing's maybe not the best. And so if he sent out that rumor, he's bad with money. And then you see him show up in town. He's, you know, not wearing the best clothes, looking a little rough you would go, okay, well, it's because he's bad with money, right? However, this is something that had to be addressed in this episode because it just doesn't seem to be true that he spent too much money. Um, and, and this seems to have been something that was held against him because he was Native American and, you know, mo- mostly white colonies here. And it seemed to be an aspect of racism that was against him. He had been ordained and he was assigned money from one of the missionary organizations to pay him for his work. But he was only given 15 pounds a year to do the job. Now, I don't know how much a pound could get you uh, back in Colony America. I'm not even really sure if Britain still has pounds. I think they do. Um, I'm not certain. Okay, I don't I don't know. How, yeah, I don't know how pounds work. I know that I'm trying to lose 15 pounds, and I know that's not the same as what they're doing. Um, but here's the thing. Here To compare it with, Occam pointed out that another, a first-year minister later on, so this is a later point, started his ministry, the same kind of ministry that he was doing, and he was not a Native American, and he started out with 180 pounds a year. So I know that whatever Occam's getting paid, he's getting a lot paid a lot less than this other gentleman. And Occam could not figure out any other reason to explain why there was just this giant discrepancy between what he got paid and the other people got paid. 
Other than it just seemed, I'm a Native American, so I'm going to get paid less. In his first few years, he actually was not even paid at all. They, he, he went to a group to work with them, and they promised to feed him and take turns feeding him, and that would be his pay. And so that's really bad. He only got a salary after he married one of Wheelock's students, Mary Fowler, and she basically kind of begged them, like, hey, we can't start a family without money. And Wheelock had tried to stop this marriage from occurring. And these two would end up having 10 children together. But, I mean, imagine how hard it was for them, Occam and Fowler, you know, as they, as they ministered, they were going from place to place. They have 10 kids, and they really aren't getting paid a lot. Just imagine how you would feed 10 kids, given that circumstance. At one point, the Scottish planned to send Occam to the Cherokee, and he'd get paid 70 pounds a year. So this seemed like a big break for him. Uh, but then the Cherokee, they got in a fight with the English colony, some warring stuff went back and forth, and the job just wasn't going to work out, dried up. That looked like a really bad moment for him, and he probably was a little frustrated by that. However, if that hadn't happened, he would not have had a chance, or probably would not have had a chance to preach with one of the most eminent and famous ministers in that era, who, and maybe in any era that ever lived, George Whitfield who was doing one of his tours through America at the time, and Occam teamed up with him. They would preach together as they went around, and it was a great moment, obviously, for him to get to preach with the George Whitfield, you know. Wheelock wanted to start a school for Native Americans, and this opportunity by Whitfield to raise support seemed like the perfect chance, the perfect opportunity to do so. So Wheelock recommended that Occam and another man uh, go to England and raise funds for this school to educate Native Americans, and they were very successful. He was heard by a lot of people, and he kind of became a little bit of a celebrity, a little bit of a famous person over there. There were these parades that would get thrown for him where he could uh, share and preach and raise funds, and King George the Third, the literal king of England, invited him to a ceremony where he was able uh, to share and get people excited about this school that they were building in America. John Hancock gave him a discount on the ship back to America. They would raise $50,000, and a good chunk of that, 10000 of that, came from one donor in particular, Lord Dartmouth. And that's what the school is, is named after. If you, if you ever heard of Dartmouth College, it was named after you know, one of the biggest contributors towards the funds that, that would eventually build it. But this is where things start to go a, a little bit sour between Wheelock and Occam at this point. Wheelock moved the school to a different location than he originally said, and he did take on some Native American students, but not very many, and not nearly, you know, it's, it's not what the arrangement was, not what it was agreed upon ahead of time, and there actually was quite a bit of controversy uh, with different governors and students, and even the King of England became involved, and overall, it just left a really bad feeling taste in Occam's mouth. He felt betrayed, because the, their goal that they agreed on and that they set forward to uh, it ended up being changed in several different ways, and it really just hurt their relationship. It, it hurt Occam's trust of Wheelock, and one of the other things that, that was an issue for Occam was that while he was gone, uh, Wheelock assured him that his family would be cared for, and when he came back, he, he found them in a pretty Im impoverished state, and so he was he was upset with him. And so this is when Wheelock published that letter. We mentioned earlier about the spendthrift side, how he didn't have money. That was in the letter uh, that Wheelock kind of defamed Occam's name with. Another aspect of it, he said, was he was a drunk. And um, he even said, like, I don't even know if he's a real Christian. He even said, I don't even know if he's a real Mohican. So, like, he really just went after him completely. And 
Wheelock kind of got his authority back. I, I, I honestly don't know if it was just as simple as Occam became really popular in England and Wheelock was jealous or just, I, it could be something as simple as that. But whatever it was, this really soured things between them. Um, and one of the worst aspects, uh, maybe that side, he cited that Occam would get dizzy with headaches because he, and, he, and Wheelock was like, yeah, he's dizzy with headaches because he's a drunk. That's his alcoholism showing. Um, but people have said, actually, it's probably more likely that he was dizzy and had headaches because he was so poorly paid that he was malnutrition. And he probably just was so hungry that he wasn't actually able to do his job very well. This sent Occam, he just kind of gave up on stuff in America. Kind of That huge tour and everything he was doing is kind of done now. He's not doing that life anymore. And he, he just goes back to working with the tribes, focusing on bringing Native Americans to Christ. He worked really hard to create a settlement for them later on, um, but especially throughout the Revolutionary War. But the, also the Revolutionary War made it really hard to set up that settlement. So it was his life was not an easy one. And there were just always problems and different things he was trying to work about. Uh, he was also worried about, honestly, the immorality he saw in the colonial towns and the way they were behaving, the way they drank, the way they interacted. He thought that was going to hurt the purity of the Native Americans as they tried to follow God. Uh, but he would eventually help found something called Brother Town, where a few different tribes could kind of work together. And one of the main focuses on putting this whole thing together in the settlement was education and teaching Christianity. And that impact really did last in 1765, this was just kind of interesting. I don't know really where to put this, so I'm kind of putting it right here. But a little earlier, Wheelock had given an indictment on slavery. And this is something he would kind of come about over and over again. It's like, hey, slavery is wrong. In fact, one of the reasons he kind of broke off relationships with the colonial Americans is he was like, how can you guys call yourself Christians while you own slaves? Uh, but a little bit earlier in his life, he had written and talked about how slavery was wrong. And Phyllis Wheatley, who was at this age only 11, wrote a letter to him talking to him. They kind of formed a pen pal relationship uh, and she would eventually grow up to be a very famous abolitionist and poet herself. Uh, and you may have heard of her name before as well. And interesting about the poetry thing, because Occam, uh, he was very interested in the arts. He had published a book on hymns and spiritual songs in 1774. It was one of the only things that besides this sermon of his that was actually published during his lifetime. Um, and he wrote a few hymns himself. And the only one I could say that's maybe slightly famous, if you know your hymns really well, maybe you've heard of Awakened by Sinai's Awful Sound. Um, that's the most famous one, but I had not heard of it. So if you've heard of it, that then that's where you know where it comes from now. We could keep going on and on. He honestly had a really interesting life, and there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and if you're interested in this region, too, Elise covered this region twice now in her show, Martyrs and Missionaries. Uh, she covered it with the life of David Brainerd, where he was an early missionary to the same tribes and the same people, this very similar area. And uh, Samuel Kirkland, who also was a missionary during the Revolutionary War to this very similar area. And actually, Samuel Kirkland ran into uh, the same guy, Wheelock, and he also had some problems with him, too. And so this is an area we've covered on a couple of different our shows. Go check those out if you're still interested in that. But uh, when he did end up dying in 1792, his funeral was attended to by over 300 other Native Americans. So a lot of people came out and his work with them is very powerful. In fact, he, he is still celebrated as a holiday among the Brothertown Indians. They still recognize um, him as just a really important member of their life. So that his impact went on to last for a long time. Yeah, so there's, there's this event in 1772. There's a man named Moses Paul, and he's thrown out of a tavern for being disorderly and drunk and angry. But he's not going to go home. He's going to linger around, and he found a, an iron bar, and he waited and the first man to come out of that bar after him was a man named Paul Cook. And Moses Paul took that iron bar, hit Paul Cook over the head with it, and ended up killing him. 
And during the trials, Moses claimed that Paul Cook taunted him and attacked him and, you know, caused him to attack him. This did not uh, fly in trial, and Moses Paul was sentenced to death by hanging. He was sentenced to be executed for this murder that, that he did, and Moses Paul was a Native American, and he felt like he was being unjustly targeted uh, because of that, and so he called for Samson Ockham to, to preach at this execution, and in his head, he's thinking that, you know, Ockham can preach about how he was being killed for the crime of being Indian. And as you'll hear, the sermon didn't quite go that way. I mean, Occam gets up there and he preaches the gospel. He, he preaches it to Moses Paul, this man that's about to be executed, and says, hey, this is this is it right here. If you don't accept Jesus, this is the end for you. And there hadn't been an execution in this town for over 20 years, and so it, it brought quite the crowd. There were thousands that had gathered for this rare event and Occam used that chance to preach the gospel to Moses. Paul used it to preach it to the listeners that were in attendance that day. And as we're about to hear, he used that opportunity to preach to everyone that's listening on this episode of Revive Thoughts. The sacred words that I have chosen to speak from upon this unfortunate occasion are found written in the epistle of St. Paul to the Roman Church in Romans 6:23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is called the king of terrors. It ought to be the subject of every man and woman's thoughts daily, because it is something for which they are susceptible every moment of their lives. Therefore, it is never a bad time to think, speak, and hear about it. For we must all come to it. How soon? We cannot tell. Whether we are prepared or not prepared, ready or not, whether death is welcome or not welcome, we must feel the force of it. Whether we concern ourselves with death or not, it will concern itself with us. Seeing that this is the case with every single one of us, then we should exert ourselves in preparation for death continually, for we do not know what day or hour may bring it home to us. But when it comes to most men, death is the last thing on their minds. They go on from day to day as if they were to live here forever, as if this was the only life. They plan, count their tools, disturb their sleep, and even risk their lives in all sorts of dangerous activities. They do it both by sea and land. And at the same time, as they live so recklessly, they have little or no desire to die well. God and their souls are always neglected. And heaven and eternal happiness are ignored. Christ and his faith are despised. Yet most of these very men desire to be happy when they come to die. They never consider that there must be great preparation in order to die well. Yes, there is no one who is so ready to live as those that are ready to die. Those that are not ready to die are not ready to live. Life and death are connected. We generally believe that it is a powerful and serious thing to die. If this is true, then it is a powerful and serious thing 
to live. For as we live, so shall we die. But I say, how little does mankind think about things like this? They are busy with the things of this world as if there was no death before them. Dr. Watts describes them in his poems. See the vain race of mortals move like shadows o'er the plain. They rage and strive, desire and love, but all the noise is vain. Some walk in honor's gaudy show, some dig for golden ore. They toil for heirs they will not know, and soon are seen no more. On the other hand, life is the most precious thing. It needs to be the most desired thing by all thinking creatures. It ought to be prized above all things. Yet there is nothing so abused and neglected as life. Eternal life is shamefully disregarded by men in general, and eternal death is chosen rather than life. This is the general complaint of the Bible from the beginning to the end. As long as Christ is neglected, life is refused. As long as sin is cherished, death is chosen. And this seems to be the terrible case of mankind in all nations, according to their attitudes these days. For it is too obvious uh, to be denied that vice, immorality, and floods of sin are abounding everywhere among all nations. Indeed, there is a great agreement and harmony among the nations, from the highest to the lowest, to practice sin and iniquity. And the pure religion of Jesus Christ is turned away and left to die. Or in other words, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is turned away by men in general, even by his professed people. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But the devil has free access to the houses and hearts of the children of men. So life is refused, and death is chosen. Now let us think about two points from the text. 1. That sin is the cause of all the miseries that befall the children of men, concerning their bodies and souls, for time and eternity. 2. That eternal life and happiness is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in speaking to the first point, I will consider the nature of sin. Sin is the breaking of the law. This is the Bible's definition of sin. Now, since the law of God is holy, just, and good, sin must be altogether unholy, unjust, and evil. If I were to divine sin, I would call it an opposition to God, and as such it must be the vilest thing in the world. It is full of all evil. It is the evil of evils. It was sin that transformed the very angels in heaven into devils. And it was sin that caused hell to be made. If it had not been for sin, there never would have been such a thing as hell or devil, death or misery. Sin is full of deadly poison. It is full of hatred against God, against all His divine perfections and attributes, against His wisdom, against His power, against His holiness and goodness, against His mercy and justice, and against His written law and gospel. Indeed, it is against his very being and existence. If sin had the power, it would even dethrone God and set itself on the throne. 
When Christ, the Son of the Most High, came down from the glorious world above into this wretched world of sin and sorrow to seek and to save that which was lost, sinners rose up against him as soon as he entered the world. They pursued him with hellish malice, night and day, for over thirty years. And then they killed him. Further, sin is against the Holy Ghost. It opposes all his good and holy operations upon the children of men. Wherever there is the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the children of men in a way of conviction and conversion, sin will prompt the devil and his children to rise up against it. If open opposition will not do, the devil will mimic the work and through tricks prevent the good effects. So we find by the scripture accounts that whenever God raises up men and uses them as instruments of conviction and conversion, the devil and his tools will rise up to destroy both the reformers and the reformed. For it has been this way since early times, and we find it today. In this time of the outpouring of the Spirit of God in, this, in these colonies, to the conviction and reformation of many, Immediately sin and the devil influenced many to rise up against the good work of God, calling it delusion and the work of the devil. And so sin opposes every motion of the Spirit of God in the heart of every Christian. This causes warfare in the soul. And now to show the effects of sin on the children of men. Sin has poisoned them and made them distracted, even fools. The psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And Solomon, through his Proverbs, calls ungodly sinners fools, and he calls their sin foolishness. The Apostle James says, but the tongue cannot be tamed. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. It is the heart that is in the first place full of deadly poison. The tongue is only an interpreter of the heart. Sin has permeated the whole man, both soul and body. All the faculties are corrupted. It has turned the minds of men against all good and towards all evil. Sin has stupefied mankind. Now they are ignorant of God, their Maker, and they are ignorant of themselves. They do not understand their danger, and they have no fear of God before their eyes. Sinful man is more like the devil than any creature we can think of. Christ said to his disciples, One of you is a devil. And to the unbelieving Jewish authorities, he said, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. And so every unconverted soul is a child of the devil. Sin has made them so. We have given some few hints of the nature of sin and the effects of sin on mankind. Now we will consider the wages of sin, which is death. Sin is the cause of all the miseries that attend poor sinful man, and it will finally bring him to death, both physically and eternally. His physical death begins as soon as he is born. Although it seems to us that he is just beginning to live, he has, in fact, just entered into a state of death. As St. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Man is surrounded with 10,000 instruments of death and is capable of death every moment of his life. A thousand diseases await him on every side continually. 
and it seems all the enjoyments of men in this world are also poisoned with sin. For God said to Adam after he had sinned, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. By this we plainly see that everything alive is now cursed. Whatever God curses is certainly a cursed thing. And so death and destruction is in all the enjoyments of men in this life. Even the dearest enjoyments of men are generally balanced with equal sorrow and grief. A man and his wife who have lived together in happiness for many years must in the end be separated. One of them must be taken away first by death, and then the poor survivor is drowned in tears. And when a dear child or children are taken away by death, the bereaved parents are brought down low with sorrow and deep mourning. When Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, they took his coat and rolled it in the blood and carried it to their father. The good patriarch knew it to be Joseph's coat, and he concluded that his dear Joseph was devoured by evil beasts and he was plunged all over in sorrow and bitter mourning, and he refused to be comforted. And when tender parents are taken away by death, the children are left comfortless. All these situations are due to the sad effects of sin. They are the wages of death. And secondly, we are to consider man's spiritual death while he is here in this world. We find it written in the Word of God, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may f freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet he did eat of it. And so he and all his children are but dead men. All those who are in their sins are dead in sins. Yes, in trespasses and sins which may signify all sorts of sins, habitual and actual, sins of heart and life. Sin is the death of the soul. Sinners are dead in state and cut off from God, the fountain of life. And they are dead in law, as a condemned criminal is said to be a dead man. Now a dead man, in a natural sense, is inactive and is of no service to the living. There is no correspondence between the dead and the living. There is no agreement or union between them. No fellowship at all between the dead and the living. A dead man is altogether ignorant of the conversations among the living. And just so it is with men that are spiritually dead. Their spirituality is in sin. It is their deadness and inactivity towards God. They are of no service to God. They have no correspondence with heaven. And there is no agreement or fellowship between them and the living God. And they are totally ignorant of the agreeable and sweet dialogue there is between God and his children here below. And they are ignorant and know nothing of that blessed fellowship and union there is among the saints here below. Prayer is not pleasant work with them, or if they have any pleasure in it, it is not out of love to God, but out of self-love. They are like the Pharisees of old, for they love to pray in open view of men that they might have the praise from them. When they read the book of God, it's like an old almanac to them, nothing more than a dead book. But it is because they are dead, and as such, all their services are against God. Even their best services are an abomination to God. 
Yes, a sinner is so dead in sin that the threats of God don't move them. All the thunderings and lightnings of Mount Sinai won't stir them, and all the curses of the law are out against them. Yes, every time they read these curses in the Bible, they are cursing them to their faces and to their very eyes. But they are unconcerned and go on in sin without fear. He has no fear of hell and eternal torments. For he sees his fellow men dropping away daily on every side, yet he goes on carelessly in sin, as if he was never to die. And if he at any time thinks of dying, he hardly believes his own thoughts. Death is at a great distance, so far off that he doesn't concern himself about it, so as to prepare for it. God mournfully complains of his people that they don't consider their ways, or that they are wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their final place. And the poor departed soul must take up its lodging in sorrow, woe, and misery, in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched, where a multitude of frightful deformed devils dwell and the damned ghosts of Adam's race live, where darkness, horror, and despair reigns, where hope never comes, where poor guilty naked souls will be tormented with awful torments, and even the wrath of the Almighty poured out upon their damned souls. The smoke of their torments rise up forever and ever. Their mouths and nostrils stream forth with living fire, and hellish groans and howlings, cries and shrieks all around them. And they must endure the most insatiable, fruitless desires that can never be satisfied, and the most overwhelming shame and confusion with the most horrible fear and the most pathetic sorrows, filled with the most racking despair. When they cast their flaming eyes to heaven, they behold an angry and frowning God, whose eyes are like a flaming fire, and they are struck with ten thousand darts of pain. And the sight of the happiness of the saints above adds to their pains and aggravates their misery. And when they reflect upon their past folly and madness, in neglecting the great salvation in their day, it will pierce them with ten thousand inconceivable torments, and hell will kindle afresh to them, and it will cause them to curse themselves bitterly, and curse the day in which they were born, and curse their parents that were the instruments of their being into the world. Yes, they will curse, bitterly curse, and wish for the God that gave them their being. They will wish God to be in the same condition with them in their hell torments. This is what is called the second death and it is the last death, an eternal death to a guilty soul. Oh, eternity, eternity, who can measure it? Who can count the years of it? Math must fail. The thoughts of men and angels are drowned in it. How will we describe eternity? To what will we compare it? Imagine if we had a fly to carry off this globe a tiny piece, and to carry it such a distance that it would return only once in 10,000 years for another particle. And so it continues until it has carried off all this globe and framed them together in some unknown place till it has made just such a world as this, but in a new place, piece by piece. And yet eternity is even longer than this. 
This must be the unavoidable portion of all impenitent sinners. Let them be who they will be, great or small, honorable or ignoble, rich or poor, bond or free, Africans, Indians, English, or of any nation or tribe. All that die in their sins must go to hell together, for the wages of sin is death. Now let us consider the second point, that eternal life and happiness is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The life that is mentioned in our text is a spiritual life. It is the life of the soul, a restoration of soul from sin to holiness, from darkness to light. In other words, it is being restored to the image of God and delivered from the image of Satan. This life consists in union of the soul to God and communion with God, a real participation of the divine nature. Or in the Apostle's words, it is Christ formed within us. I live, says he, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the Apostle John says, God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God, and God in him. This is the life of the soul. It is emphatically called life because it is a life that will never have a period. It is a stable, permanent, and unchangeable life called in the scriptures everlasting life or life eternal. And the happiness of this life consists in communion with God or in the spiritual enjoyment of God. A true Christian desires no other heaven but the enjoyment of God. A full and perfect enjoyment of God is a full and perfect heaven and happiness to a gracious soul. Further, this life is called eternal life because God has planted a living principle in the soul. And whereas he was dead before, now he is made alive for God. There is an active principle within him towards God. He now moves towards God in his religious devotions and exercises. For he is daily comfortable and sweetly talking with God in all his ordinances and commands. His delight is in the ways of God. He breathes towards God a living breath in praises, in prayers, adorations, and thanksgivings. His prayers are now heard in the heavens, and his praises delight in the ears of the Almighty. His thanksgivings are accepted. So alive is he now to God that it is his meat and drink to do the will of his heavenly Father. It is his delight, his happiness, and pleasure to serve God. He does not drag himself to his duties now, but he does them out of choice and desire. We have a bright example of this in St. Paul. After he was converted, he was all alive to God. He regarded not his life, but was willing to spend and be spent in the service of his God. He was hated, reviled, despised, laughed at, and called by all manner of evil names. He was scourged, stoned, and imprisoned. And all this could not stop his activity towards God. He would boldly and courageously go on in preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the poor, lost, and undone sinners. He would do the work God set him about, in spite of all opposition he met with, whether from men or devils, earth or hell. All of this because he was alive for God. Although he suffered hunger and thirst, cold and heat, poverty and nakedness by day and by night, by sea and land, and was endangered in all ways, yet he would serve God amidst all these dangers. And so it has been in all ages with true Christians. 
Many of the forefathers of the English went through all manner of sufferings for God, and a great number of them have gone home to heaven in chariots of fire. I have seen the palace in London, called Smithfield, where numbers were burnt to death for the religion of Jesus Christ. And there is the same life in true Christians nowadays. And if persecutions arise in our day, I truly believe that true Christians would suffer with the same spirit and attitude of mind as those did who suffered in days past. This is the life which our text speaks of. We proceed in the next place to show that this life which we now now described is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sinners have forfeited all mercy into the hand of divine justice and have merited hell and damnation to themselves. For the wages of sin is everlasting death. But heaven and happiness is a free gift. It comes by favor, and all merit is excluded, and especially if we consider that we are fallen sinful creatures, and there is nothing in us that can suggest us to the favor of God. We can do nothing that is agreeable and acceptable to God. For even the mercies we enjoy in this life are altogether from the pure mercy of God. We are unequal to them and unworthy of them. Good old Jacob cried out under a sense of his unworthiness, I am less than the least of all your mercies. And we have nothing to give to God. For we were his before. He had the right to do with us as he pleased, either to throw us into hell or save us. There is nothing that we can call our own but our sins. And who is he that dares to say, I expect to have heaven for my sins? For our text says that the wages of sin is death. If we are unequal and unworthy of the least mercy in this life, how much more are we unworthy of eternal life? Yet God can find it in his heart to give it, and it is altogether unearned. It is a free gift to the undeserving and hell-deserving sinners of mankind. It is altogether of God's sovereign good pleasure to give it. It could not be given in any other way, but in and through the death and sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ himself is the gift, and he is the Christian's life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The word says further, By their grace you are saved, and through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This is given through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is Christ that purchased it with his own blood. He prepared it with his divine and almighty power. And by that same power, and by the influence of his Spirit, he prepares us for it. And by his divine grace preserves us to it. In a word, he is all in all in our eternal salvation, and all this is the free gift of God. Now to apply this text to our present situation. First to the criminal in particular, my poor unhappy brother Moses. As it was your own desire that I should preach to you this last sermon, so I will speak plainly to you. You are the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You are an Indian, and we know what it is to be despised. But worst, you have despised yourself. And even worse, you have despised God more. 
for you have trodden underfoot his authority. You have despised his commands and precepts. And now, as God says, be sure your sins will find you out. And now, poor Moses, your sins have found you out, and they have overtaken you this day. The day of your death has now come. The king of terrors is at hand. You have but a few moments to breathe in this world. The just laws of man and the holy law of Jehovah call aloud for the destruction of your mortal life. God says whoever sheds man's blood, by man will his blood be shed. This is the ancient decree of heaven, and it is to be executed by man. Nor have you the least gleam of hope of escape, for the unalterable sentence has passed. The terrible day of execution is here. The unwelcome guard is around you, and the fatal instruments of death are now made ready. Your coffin and your grave, your final lodging, are open, ready to receive you. O poor Moses, now you know by sad, by woeful experience, the living truth of our text, that the wages of sin is death. You have already been dead, but now you are twice dead, by nature spiritually dead. And since the awful sentence of death has been passed upon you, you have been dead to all the pleasures of this life or at least all the pleasures, lawful and unlawful, have been dead to you. And death, which is the wages of sin, is standing even on this side of your grave, ready to put a final period to your mortal life. And just beyond the grave, eternal death awaits your poor soul. And your soul will go to the bottomless den, where everlasting woe and horror reigns. The place is filled with doleful shrieks, Howls and groans of the damned. Oh, to what miserable, forlorn, and wretched condition have your extravagant mistakes and wickedness brought you. This awaits you if you die in your sins. And oh, what manner of repentance you need to manifest. How your heart ought to bleed for what you have done. How you ought to prostrate your soul before a bleeding Savior and under self-condemnation, cry out, Lord, ah, oh Lord, what have I done? Whatever partiality, injustice, and error there may be among the judges of the earth, just remember that you have deserved a thousand deaths and a thousand hells by reason of your sins at the hands of a holy God. Should God come out against you in strict justice? Alas, what could you say for yourself? For you have been brought up under the bright sunshine and plain and loud sound of the gospel. And you have had a good education. You can read and you can write well. And God has given you a good natural understanding of things. And therefore your sins are so much more grievous. For you have not sinned in such an ignorant manner as others have. But you have sinned with both your eyes open as to the glorious light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have sinned against the pure and holy laws of God and the just laws of men. You have sinned against heaven and earth. You have sinned against all the mercies and goodness of God. You have sinned against the whole Bible, against the Old and the New Testament. You have sinned against the blood of Christ, 
which is the blood of the everlasting covenant. Oh, poor Moses, see what you have done. And now repent, repent, I say again, repent. See how the blood you shed cries out against you, and the avenger of blood is at your heels. Oh, fly, fly to the blood of the Lamb of God for the pardon of all your aggravated sins. But now let us turn to a more pleasant idea. Though you have been a great sinner, yes, a heaven-cursing rebel, and yet stop and hear the joyful sound from heaven, coming from the King of kings and Lord of lords, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a free gift and offered to the greatest sinners. And upon their true repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be welcomed to the eternal life which we spoke of. It is offered upon free terms. He that has no money may come. He that has no righteousness, no goodness may come. The call is to poor, undone sinners. The call is not to the righteous, but sinners, calling them to repentance. Hear the voice of the Son of the Most High God. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is a call, a gracious call, to you, poor Moses under your present burdens and distresses. And Christ alone has a right to call sinners to himself. So you see, poor Moses, that there is none in heaven or on the earth that can help you but Christ. For he alone has power to save and to give life. God the Eternal has appointed him, chosen him, authorized and fully commissioned him to save sinners. He came down from heaven into this lower world and became one of us and stood in our place. He was the second Adam. And as God demanded perfect obedience of the first Adam, the second fulfilled it. And as the first sinned and incurred the wrath and anger of God, the second endured it. He suffered in our place. As he became sin for us, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. All our stripes were laid upon him. He was finally condemned because we were under condemnation, and at last was executed and put to death for our sins. He was lifted up between heaven and earth and was crucified on the accursed tree. And there he fully satisfied the divine justice of God for penitent, believing sinners, even if they had been the chief of sinners. Oh, Moses, this is good news to you on this last day of your life. Here is a crucified Savior at hand for your sins. His blessed hands are outstretched all in a gore of blood for you. This is the only Savior, an almighty Savior, just as such as you stand in infinite and perishing need of. Oh, Moses, hear the dying prayer of a gracious Savior on the accursed tree. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This was a prayer for his enemies and murderers. And it is for you, if you would only repent and believe in him. Well, why will you die eternally, poor Moses, since Christ has died for sinners? This is the day of your execution. It is the accepted time. But it is a day of salvation, if you will only now believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Moses, now believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, and you will be saved eternally. Come just as you are with all your sins and abominations, with all your filthiness, with all your blood guiltiness, 
with all your condemnation and lay hold of the hope set before you this day. This is the last day of salvation for your soul. You will be beyond the bounds of mercy in a few minutes. Oh, what a joyful day would it be if you would now openly believe in and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be the beginning of heavenly days with your poor soul. Instead of a melancholy day, it would be a freeing day to your soul. And your shame and guilt will be forever banished from the place. And all sorrow and fear forever fly away and tears be wiped from your face. And there will you forever admire the astonishing and amazing and infinite mercy of God in Christ Jesus, imparting such a monstrous sinner as you have been. But if you will not accept of a Savior so freely offered to you, in this, the last day of your life, you must this very day bid farewell to God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, to heaven and all the saints and angels that are there, and you must bid all the saints in this lower world, an eternal farewell. And so I must leave you in the hands of God, and I must turn to the rest of us gathered here. Sirs, we may plainly see, from what we have heard, and from the miserable object before us, into what a sad condition sin has brought mankind. Even into a state of death and misery, we are, by nature, all of us under the sentence of death from God just as this miserable man is. And we are all dying creatures, and we are, or ought to be, at least aware of it. And this is the dreadful fruit of our sin. Let us then fly from all appearance of sin. Let us fight against it with all our might. Let us repent and turn to God, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may live forever. Let us all prepare for death, for we do not know how soon or how suddenly we may be called out of the world. Permit me in particular, reverend gentlemen and shepherds in Israel, to speak a few words to you. For since the province of God has so ordered it that I must speak here on this occasion, I beg that you would not be offended or be angry with me. God has raised you up from among your brothers and has qualified and authorized you to do his great work. And you are the servants of the Most High God. Ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the living God, you are Christ's ambassadors. You are called shepherds, watchmen, overseers, or bishops, and you are rulers of the temples of God, or of the assemblies of God's people. As such, you have nothing to do but to wait upon God, and to do the work the Lord Jesus Christ, your blessed Lord and Master, has set you about. Without fearing the face of any man, nor seeking to please men, but honoring your master. You are to declare the whole counsel of God and to give a portion to every soul in due season. As physicians give a portion to his patients according to their diseases, so you are to give a portion to every soul in due season according to their spiritual maladies. Whether it be agreeable or disagreeable to them, you must give it to them. Whether they will love you or hate you for it, you must do your work. Your work is to battle sin and Satan. This was the very end of the coming of Christ into the world and the end of his death and sufferings. It was to make an end of sin and to destroy the works of the devil. And this is your work still. Therefore, combine together and be terrible as an army with banners. 
Attack this monster sin in all its shapes and shadows, and lift up your voices as trumpets, and do not whisper. But shout, and call your people to arms against this common enemy of mankind, or sin may be their ruin. Let us all attend and hear the great apostle of the Gentiles speaking to us in Ephesians chapter 6, from the 10th verse and onward. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of all evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can distinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I will now address myself to the Indians my brothers and family according to the flesh. My poor kindred, you see the woeful consequences of sin. Look at this poor miserable countryman now before us, who is to die this day for his sin and great wickedness. And it was the sin of drunkenness that has brought their destruction and untimely death upon him. There is a dreadful woe denounced from the Almighty God against drunkards. And it is this sin, this evil, this beastly and accursed sin of drunkenness that will strip us of every desirable comfort in this life. And this is not all the misery and evil we will bring on ourselves in this world, but when we are intoxicated with strong drink, we drown our rational powers. Strong drink takes away humanity and leaves us brutal beasts. We become not like the beasts of the field, but seven degrees beneath them. My poor kindred, do consider what a dreadful, abominable sin drunkenness is. What will become of all such drunkards? Without doubt, they must all go to hell, except they that truly repent and turn to God. And to conclude, consider, my poor kindred, you that are drunkards, into what a miserable condition you have brought yourselves. There is a dreadful woe thundering against you every day, and the Lord says, that the drunkard will not inherit the kingdom of God. And now let me exhort you all to break off from any drunkenness by a gospel of repentance and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Take warning by this pathetic sight before us and by all the dreadful judgments that have befallen poor drunkards like him. Let us all reform our lives and live as if dying creatures. Let us live as if we were accountable creatures to God, and we must be called to an account in a few days. You that have been careless all your days, now awake to righteousness, and be concerned for your poor and never-dying soul. Fight against all sins, and especially the sin that easily tempts you, and behave in time to come as it honors rational creatures to behave. 
and above all things, receive and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have eternal life. And when you come today, your souls will be received into heaven, there to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternal happiness with all the saints in glory. Amen. There's not not really a lot that can be added to a sermon like that. I mean, I, but I think about Moses, Paul, and I think about the just passion Occam had for him. You know, he knew that Moses, Paul, was going to die. And so he didn't sugarcoat it. He gave him the gospel. He said, you've got to get right with God. You have literally no other opportunities you know, don't play games right now. And I just think to myself, I hope we all can be that diligent about sharing the gospel because you never, you do not know when the people around you are going to die. And you never know when the person you're interacting with could be their last chance to hear the gospel. And I, I hope that that passion and that desire to see people converted for Christ will be the same. I hope we do not get opportunities like he had to share the gospel with people, maybe for the last time, and we don't get so worried about what they think of us or scaring them away from God or any of those kind of things that we sugarcoat it. But let us be like Occam and just give them the truth. We are sinners and we are in need of redemption from Jesus Christ. He is the only way to salvation. I think that that is such a powerful message that Occam did not sugarcoat. Occam did not hide from it. He gave it straight to that man. And, you know, I don't know. We don't, we don't know what happened to Moses, Paul. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that he was converted from it. But maybe other people who are listening, who are watching, who came to the event, maybe they looked a little bit more soberly and understood their place before eternity a little bit better after the sermon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Michael T. Miller. After eight years in the Air Force and Armies, he spent one year in, in an Arabic language school and spent two years in Saudi Arabia with the Army. 25 years he spent working for a gas utility company in Pennsylvania and 12 years as a truck driver. Now he lives in a retirement community with his wife and is a self-proclaimed, quote, blabbermouth for Jesus, which I thought was, uh, which I thought was funny. If you enjoyed this sermon, if you enjoy the other episodes we do here at Revive Studio, especially our show that you're listening to right now, Revive Thoughts, if you like our Revived Conversations or you like some of the other sermons that you've listened to, we encourage you to tell a friend. This is uh, a church history podcast I think is really encouraging, helps people to grow in their walk with God, helps people to get uh, different perspectives on their walk with God and learn as they do about different people from church history. So we hope that you will tell other people in your life, maybe there's a friend, maybe there's a family relationship, maybe there's a, uh, as a pastor or someone you know who's interested in ministry, and maybe you can say, hey, you know what, this sounds like a show you would enjoy, or you've been mentioning that you want to grow a little bit more, maybe you check out this show, maybe this will help you uh, do that. We think that our show is beneficial in that way, and we've heard from many of you, and you guys think so too, so it would be, uh, it would really, it also helps us a lot, the more people that are listening, the more uh, impact we can make too, and that's really helpful to us. This is Troy Angel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Mm-hmm.